everybody, welcome back to the 54th episode of this podcast, which is called Taps and Patience. I am AJ with Design the Everything here with Harrison from and no guests today. So you get to get some shop updates and we get to talk about fab tech a little bit today. Yeah, it's weird. I don't have to worry about talking over anyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Accidentally. Oh or technical difficulties. Or technical difficulties. Yeah. No, it's I've honestly had a blast with all these guests we've had recently, and it's definitely I feel like kind of stroked the uh, the popularity of the podcast because I've had I've had several people people reach out to me, um, and I'm I wonder if it's because of the guests and the uptick, and it's been awesome to kind of catch up with some podcast listeners, and um, they've had some really interesting input on the new machine, so. I, I think we should slow down the pace of guests a little bit. I don't think I want to do every week as a guest. No. But, oh boy, do they help our analytics. Especially when you interview the number one, uh, or the host of the number one machining podcast. Yeah, yeah. That really helped. <laughs> I think, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you have an idea of pacing, but, you know, once a month would be nice. Just to have one person on a month to kind of get some feedback and input. I would be okay with, every other week or two times a month. Yeah. Yeah. That would be fun too. No, that's good. Yeah, I, it, I had a lot to talk about uh, last week and we just never were able to get to it. So I'm that's glad okay. that it's just us this week. We can get caught up on everything. It's like a two week break that we're now coming back from. Yeah. <laughs> so what's going on in your world? Uh, so last week, last week, gosh, I've lost track of all time at this point. At some point, which I think was last week, was Fabtech. Scott and I went on a Sunday... Was that last week? Now I'm doubting everything. Yeah, that was last week. That's why last week was chaos. Okay. Uh, Scott and I left here on a Sunday night. We stayed at a hotel and then went first thing in the morning. We were expecting to be there all day. We had a list of goals. We were like, all right, it's going to take us all day. We're going to knock these things out. Literally within the first 45 minutes, we hit all of our goals. (laughs) <laughs> it was like, oh, well, this was easy. The first aisle we walked down, um, we, we hit all of our goals. So most of the, the rest of the show was just kind of fun and, you know, looking at the cool robots and stuff. Yeah. So um, how big is that show? Like how many, like how many booths we talk and how long would it take you to see everything there? It depends on what detail you want to see it in. If you wanted to be... Like, if you wanted to see everything in detail, I think it would take um, probably two, two and a half days. It is in the same building as IMTS. I think it is one less hall. I think IMTS is all four halls and Fabtech is three. And the halls are definitely a little bit more sparse than at IMTS. But it is of a similar size. Okay. That's Um, cool. I, so, I only saw two machines there that were chip removal, which was a little bit sad, but Yeah, so that's what I was wondering is so the other side of Fabtech is that it's probably not as CNC machine focused. Oh yeah. No, 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 no. Unless you unless you like lasers and uh you know, benders and turret punches and that kind of thing. Yeah. But yeah, not chip removal. <clears throat> no, that's fair. Still probably some interesting stuff though. Oh, a ton. Did you see, and I haven't actually watched it yet, but did you see the Smarter Everyday video about yes. like forming? They had a robot on site doing that there at Fabtech. Oh, that's cool. 
Um, I, I'm excited to go watch that video in order to learn a little bit more about the process. But yeah, yeah, it was, it was cool. Yeah, I've, I've, I've watched were... it about. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean it. You said we weren't going to talk over each other. Clearly, we are. Um, <laughs> if you are into like the welding sheet metal side, Fabtech is your IMTS. Yeah. So. Yeah, my the my old company that I worked with, um, the owner of the company would go there a bunch, and he probably went was there this year for all I know, because mm-hmm. um, he's big into like the laser cutters and press breaks and welding, all that kind of stuff. So. But. Yeah, it, it it's cool. Uh, Scott and I both had fun. Even Scott, who's not a, as technical as I am, like he had fun looking at things and you know seeing what processes are out there and stuff. Yeah, that's cool. Did you, so robots? Tell me about robots. I, so I asked I you to at, specifically look into those. I looked at all the robots there, and there were a couple trends is basically if you went to a company that was not a robot manufacturer, they all had UR. If you went to one of the, like the integration specialists, they were UR. If you went to like a company that was doing welding, they were using a UR robot for the welding. The only companies that weren't using the URs were the companies that made robots. Um, that being said, the UR robots were probably my least favorite of the ones that I saw there. Other okay. than the fact that they were just everywhere. Um, the, oh, I'm blanking on the name of the, the company. It's like robot con- concepts or something like that, but they, they have a robot. that's like the OB seven. And that was, I think my favorite one that I saw there, um, for the actual cobot part. Did you that, see any, <laughs> uh, Fanuc or Doosan cobots? I did not see any Doosan. There were, you know, Fanics everywhere. The, well, there were Fanics everywhere in the Fanuc booth. Um, I don't think they had a demo of doing part loading with the Fanix. I think they just had them set up for like welding and painting. So I didn't go into as much detail on those. So there's, um, there's, there's two Fanic cobots that I've looked at. One of them is the green painted robots that look just like the yellow ones. Mm-hmm. And then the other one is one that kind of has that UR cobot look. They're both technically okay. cobots. And the, well, the the space age looking one is, I think, a little more user friendly from what I've gathered. Whereas the green one is basically just like an industrial one, except it's got feedback. I mean, so that sounds good to me. So, I've been. I don't know which route I would want to go if I went Fanic, but that sounds like from the different people I've talked to is the going to be the most reliable and the fastest and probably the most accurate. Yes, that would not surprise me in the least. The reason I like the OB7s is because they, like, were kind of offset of their base, or at least this one was, and it could, like, swivel around and kind of get around the door and into the machine. Yeah. And it was not in the way of running the machine when it was not being used, and it was not in the way of setting up the machine. I, I think you did send me some stuff on the OB7, and what I liked about it was it was the cheapest Cobot I've found yet. <laughs> was it really? Yeah. Uh, you want to share the quote? Well, they have their pricing online. Oh, they do don't they? hide it. They don't hide it. I like these people already. So, yeah, no, I I closed out of the tab that had them open. Yeah, um, but like, yeah, you could the just offset base. You could just buy them, and and like it showed you the price. I think it was huh. like 
So. Because, like, I could, like, buy them and it, it was, like, you know, it was, like, 20 grand or 25 grand. And then, like, if you wanted a CNC tending ready package, it was, like, 35 grand, which is, like, not bad at all. That's, no, like, that's fantastic. That's, that's like, Tormach robot prices. Or yeah. close to. Huh. Interesting. So, like. I... Oh. Did you, did you, did you like pause for a second? You like froze on my computer. Oh, no, I'm, I'm still here. I'm trying to find the, the price of one somewhere. Um, I very much enjoyed that these robots or the, kind of phrases, the demo that they had for these robots had a cardboard cutout VF3 mm-hmm. and it was hilarious. It, it had a functional door and a functional house controller, but the rest of it was cardboard. It was, I was highly amused. That's funny. But okay, so you like the OBs, or no, you don't like the OBs, but they're cheap. No, I, I like um, them. I like them. Their their price is good. I'd love to learn a little bit more about them. I just don't want to make sure that um, they don't have the same problems that people say UR has. Yeah. In the long run, especially, especially if they're cheaper. <laughs> Yeah, so if they're cheaper, honestly, that means that if they do go bad, it's not as big of a hit. So, like, yeah, see, like, you can just, they have the pricing right there. It's awesome. Yeah. So, Um, yeah, and they have all their different pricing options for all the different things. Like, it is, like, looking at them, it is a phenomenal deal um, for what you're getting. Like, Yeah, look at that. Machine package, 35K. Yeah, if, if they work as advertised, it's awesome. So, and I'm not even sure I'd get the machining package because I, I really just want the base and then I'll probably get the, uh, um, VersaGrip system. So, yeah, as, as long as VersaBuilt can, can integrate with these guys, um, which I'm sure they can, I'm, I'm sure, sure that's can. pretty easy. Then I would just probably get the standard one, but I, I do like that it comes with a cart that I can roll around because I, I, I want to stick it in front of the mill and the lathe. So the ability to do both of those would be phenomenal. And it looks like out of the box, it would work really well for the lathe because it could just have the grippers grab onto round parts and load them. Like that would be yep. ridiculously easy. I don't see any challenges with that. So for, yeah, for that I, alone, I, looked, I think it's worth it. Huh? I was gonna say, I looked at the VersaBuilt system and I mean, it is pretty slick. I think it adds a lot of weight to your whole motion assembly and like adds some, a little bit of overhead in terms of um, just like needing their vice and needing their jaws and yada, mm-hmm. yada, yada. But I mean, it looked like the most reliable thing that I saw there. It looked pretty slick. Yeah. Um, what what the... I liked about it was that it seemed the most um, dynamically suited system define dynamically suited uh it could it can be adjusted to fit almost any part relatively cheaply and easily without having to do a whole lot without going to a full-blown palette changing system yes so it's kind of it's kind of the hybrid between a palette changing system and a dedicated robot cell for one part yep um the I mean, a lot of the constraints are, are pretty obvious, like 
you know, it, you need to be able to fit the part within your soft jaws and you need to make the soft jaws and you need to buy the soft jaws. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing I would say that was unobvious about that system, if you're just looking at, at it online, the vice and the soft jaws are tall. Yes. That thing, by the, the time you have your part on there, you're like 12 inches off of your table. So I have it on authority that, or call it rumor mill at this point, I guess. I won't say on authority, but on the rumor mill that Versabilt is working on a shorter version of their uh, table-mounted vice. I so, have seen this, and it is a grand total of like 10% shorter. Oh, that's it? I mean, it's probably more than that, but it's still like, I don't know, 8 inches or something up to your part instead of 12 inches. I did mm. not look at it and was like, oh, it's so small and cute. It's like, this is the same thing, but like, you know, someone took it into photoshop and just kind of a little bit gotcha um Grr. i think if you're in a vf it won't matter if you're trying to put this thing in i don't know a sil x5 or something then it'll be a problem yeah that's fair uh, the the other thing i learned from talking to everybody is i don't think there is any way with any of these systems you get by without um a lot of in-process probing and mm-hmm. or some method of clearing chips off of the the fixture and everything. Yeah, that's um, something we're we're working on right now. Is we we got to get reliable systems in place, and we're trying to do that with the Tormach as much as possible in preparation for a bigger machine. That's smart, I think. So, um, what are you doing about your whole wireless probing situation? So we got a wireless probe. We ended up going with the zoom speed after talking to you. And to the best of my knowledge, I don't think it sleeps or if it sleeps, it, it works on the first touch because I turned on the machine. I grabbed the probe and I had it probe something and I didn't touch it and it just worked. So nice. So I don't think I need to do any sort of flick thing or anything like that um, to wake it. I don't like that. It has the box on the side. I like the fully integrated version that yours is, Mm -hmm. but I think it's going to be a more reliable system. I did some playing around with it and I don't know because I didn't do the same testing before, but I feel like there's a slight delay in repeatability of a couple tenths. Like there's some sort of signal um, delay or something. Yeah. Um, and because I tried, I tried doing the same. I tried probing the same thing multiple times, and I could. There, there is with the zoom speed. It does have a place where you can bypass it and plug it directly into, like, and turn it back into a wire probe. Like oh, it has, That's nice. it has some ports that you can connect up to that, then you can use your old cable. I haven't modified my old cable to work with it, but it has that ability, so you can use it and not do the wireless thing if you ever need to. And so what I should do is I should probably wire that up and then do the same test and see if I have the same issue. Um, regardless, it's still going to be plenty fast enough or, or plenty accurate enough for what we're doing. I mean, if, we're, if it's only off by a couple tenths, um, even when we were hand loading it and, and probing um, in process, you know, it, your part would be off by three or f- two to three thou, and it would be more than accurate enough to, to bring that a lot closer. 
So it'd still be far more accurate than by hand. Is the delay repeatable? Is it just different from when it was wired? Or is it um, a little bit of un- a little bit of random thrown in? A little, little bit of random. So like so like I probed like so like whenever I, I remounted everything, and the only reason I noticed it is because whenever you do the uh, ABC and you're trying to get everything recentered again because I tore it all apart, um, A is always zero zero. Like I'll probe it in Y and then I'll probe A to verify. And A should always read zero. And I'm consistently uh, plus or minus three tenths uh, um, from that zero value when I when I probe it the first time. And I don't feel like I had that before. And it well, I, I won't say consistent. Um, it's 80% of the time it's within a tenth. But there's a 20% where you're within plus or minus three tenths. Have you tried slowing down your probing speed a little bit? Probing speed is one and a half inches per minute. Oh, that's slow. Okay. So. Is that always where you probe? That's what it was from the default, and that's what I've left it at. Oh, okay. So. I probe faster than that. It, well, it's, but... it's, it's, it's like 25 or 30 inches a minute for the first touch, and then it's like. I do one that po- slower. Huh? <laughs> I said I do that one slower. Yeah, no, my first touch is fast, and my second touch is slow. Yeah, okay. And so, um, and for some reason, it's it. I don't feel like it's quite as precise, but it's still more than precise for what I'm trying to do with it. Because, um, I mean, the Tormach has much bigger issues that will make it more than a couple tenths out whenever you're making the parts. Although, with the probe, it did make a, like... We did 32 stainless parts, and I think we posted a photo of it. Perfect five-axis part. Um, really kind of ticks me off. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, like it would be an amazing five-axis part. Um, it was, I think, six op- five or six ops to do it. And I used the probe on everything after op one, and all the dimensions were within a thou. Nice consistent yeah, that's, so that is big improvement now not within easier. not within a thou of the model within a thou of each other like i didn't adjust anything once i got it like i was within plus or minus a couple thou of the mm-hmm. of the model drawings but with from part to part to part without making any adjustments they were all within about a thou or better yeah. so if that makes sense they were they were repeatedly unrepeatable <laughs> <laughs> So, is it one um, of these parts? Yeah, it's that top part right there. Yeah, that'd be that'd be a good five axis part. So yeah, and I don't know if you can see. So it's got two holes on either end um, that are uh, plus or minus one thou. That's the tightest tolerance. It's got two tapped holes um, that are different, or it's got three tapped holes. Two of them are M five. One of them's an M four, M three. That smaller That's one. Four. If those other ones are M5, that one's an M4. Yeah. And then it's got that little slot right there that's on both sides. I mean, you just have to hit. And, like, I, I did a different version of this part that had tapped holes on the bottom face. So I think this one was a 5-op. The other one was a 6-op. Um, but <laughs> um, 
I have no way to do, I don't have a drill bit long enough, nor do I think it would be accurate enough to drill all the way those, the two side holes to line up. And yeah. last time I did these parts, thankfully the prints didn't have a concentricity call out. Um, uh -huh. um, but these are way more concentric because of the probe. Um, just, just measuring off of the back edge and to where the hole's at, like they're way more consistent than the, the first batch that I did. Um, when I wasn't using the probe mm -hmm. and just relying your, on a part stop. So your tumble finish looks really nice though. That's sandblast. That's sandblast. That's sandblast. What media are you using? Glass bead? Uh, 80 grit, um, oxide, like, uh, aluminum oxide. Really? Mm-hmm. Why does that look so different? I guess it could be the picture. That's really different from when I do it. No, it's it. We've we've done a lot of work to our sandblasting cabinet to make it better. Interesting. Uh, like what? So, oh gosh. Um. So we have a Harbor Freight one, mm -hmm. and we got a new gun. Okay. We got a foot pedal for it. I need to um, do that. Um. We have a trickler system on it now that we we kind of made with our own tubing where we drill the hole in the bottom of the cabinet and you you drill a hole and you put a t and then you 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 pull your media out from that t and then you have a separate valve that so you have a t that's vertical coming out and then another t that's horizontal with a ball valve coming out and you can open and close the ball valve to control the air air sand mixture going up to the gun and there's a there's YouTube videos online on, on how to do it, and it has changed that cabinet. And, and we use a fraction of the media that we were before. Because before, you had that little drop tube that goes down into the media to try to suck it up. Now, everything funnels to the bottom, and you need much less media because it's at the very center bottom of that. And, and we're coming out from outside the cabinet, and we had to drill a hole into the side of the cabinet to put the return line back in. But it's way better. And so now... Like before, Weston could only sandblast for, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes at a time max. And then he was just, it's just a pain using that gun, pulling the trigger and and all that. Now with the foot pedal and the better media control, um, he says he could stay there all day if the air compressor could keep up. And it wouldn't be bad, that big a deal. So. I, I don't know if I'm going to upgrade this cabinet before I just replace it. Um, but, I mean, if I had known about this a year ago, I totally would have. Yeah, it's made a huge difference. Um, like the quality of the parts are way more consistent, as you saw in that photo. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a lot faster. It's a, having the foot pedal is a lot less strain. It's just holding the gun and the part and like everything about it is way better. Whenever we do eventually get a bigger cabinet, this was kind of a holdover and to see what kind of improvements we could get out of this cabinet for less money. So... I have a zip tie around the handle of my uh, sandblaster gun. Mm -hmm. And when I want to hold down the trigger, I just slide it up. And when I don't want to release the trigger, I just slide it down. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Your system is so much more elegant. Yeah, uh, we just found a foot pedal off of Amazon for like 20 bucks. A pneumatic yeah, you can foot get pedal. a Harbor Freight too. I, yeah. It's been on my list, but I just haven't bothered. Yeah, and then for, for inside there, we just took some metal wire and wrapped it around the trigger. Uh, and then I think duct or duct taped or electrical taped over it to make it nice and smooth. Yeah. So it, it, it ended up working out 
really, really well. Weston is much happier because he was doing all the sandblasting before. Good to so. know. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've just been, gosh, we've just been focusing on so many different shop improvements here recently just to try to get us more efficient and faster. Yeah. Um, we bought six tool holders for all of our taps. So all of our taps okay. have dedicated holders now. Um, uh, floating or fixed? They're all fixed. They're, they're, um, uh, it's really the only time we need floating is for anything smaller than about an M4, M3. And those are not fixed. Those, those we have, we don't have holders for. Um, those we can still do floating. But anything larger, M4, M3's borderline. We had an M3 tap snap recently. Um, but anything above an M4, I haven't broken a tap in a long time. <laughs> Knock on wood. <laughs> So, so, uh, um, so as long as it's for those that, um, are common tap sizes that I haven't had any issues with, we just got dedicated, um, ER 16 collet holders and an ER 16 collet set. Okay. And just filled it up. So I had to tap something quarter 20 the other day and I was too chicken to not put it in a floating tap holder. <laughs> yeah. Anything large, I don't worry about because the Tormach will has... I've I've learned in the Tormach that anytime you get above quarter to three eighths range, the machine will stall out before the tap breaks. Mm. The, the, the tap's fair. stronger than the machine. <laughs> yeah, because I've I've tapped all the way up to a five eighths by I don't know what is five eighths by like seven or something. I don't know. Or oh yeah no yeah I don't know might be it, eight five eighths but anyway. Yeah, I, I've tapped. I can't believe you've done that in the Tormach. Oh yeah, had to do it in low belt, but I did it. <laughs> and uh, and I stalled out the machine uh, on the first few holes, and then I ended up having to go in. And I think this was back when I was using that old chart hmm. um, that we were talking about, where it's a seventy-five percent thread engagement. Yeah. And so I've since changed that, and I haven't really broken broken any taps since then. To the best of my knowledge, all machine shops do this. Like everyone I've talked to, everyone I've seen, they all adjust it up some amount, and it seems to make a big difference. So it has for us. We haven't broken the taps in a long time. Weston just got done tapping. How many holes was it? It was two or three hundred holes on the lathe. Um, with the same drill and tap, all in stainless. Um, and he was pretty stoked about that. Didn't break anything. And, th and they're both used drills and taps. Like, they weren't new. So they have a lot of time on them. But it was the most drilling and tapping consistently with the same size in a while. And so he was worried that one of them was going to break or, or something, and it, it didn't. So he was pretty stoked. Yeah. I have... It's been pretty reliable for me as long as my spindle is in good condition. Uh, I've been reliably tapping, you know, hundreds or thousands of holes, uh, 080. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. The machines can do them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Having the floating tapping head makes a big difference on the smaller sizes. I, I don't know if I trust even the larger machines without a floating tap head on on uh, the small stuff. It just, they just seem too fragile. Do you use form taps or are you using cut taps? Cut. Uh, we use cut. I, I wouldn't mind using f more form. 
Um, but I've just been using cut and it's been, I have a reliable process, so I haven't like my standard initially was, or my, my initial plan was to do form and aluminum and cut and stainless. Um, cause the only reason, and I don't know if I always thought that you don't want to form stainless because it would work harden and have a chance of breaking the form tool more than a cut but i don't know if that's true or not well i can tell you that i just did 50 uh two fifty six holes with a form tap and it is not a problem um yeah i <laughs> i had a cut tap i had one 256 cut tap and i was like yeah i'll give this a try and on my first part i broke the tap and i was like i'm just always gonna buy form taps i don't see any reason to buy anything else yeah we haven't I haven't really broken any cut taps in quite a while other than the, the M3. I went back and I tweaked my tool paths and I think that may have helped. I think I went a little bit deep with the, um, the tap. It, it was a blind hole. And I think I went too deep with the tap and bottomed out. So I went oh, back yeah. and I, I tweaked that and it was, I, I, I didn't break a single form tap. So. I always leave 10 thou on the bottom from my drill to my tap. That's just my standard. So whatever my drill depth is, I always go 10 thou off for my tap. See, I thought I left more than that. There, there was some reason. I don't remember what it was. Although uh, with my Tormach, and I don't know if it's mine or if it's all Tormachs, but I have found that my Tormach consistently seems to under tap the depth that I tell it to go to. Interesting. And... The only thing I can contribute that to is that when the spindle slows down, it tries to stop at the depth and it's just stopping a little bit early. If that makes sense. Because I've actually had it tap past the bottom height and it's still not bottom out. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I have started to just keep it 10 thou because I know at 10 thou it's not going to hit. Um, and it's Close as close enough where I don't feel comfortable. Even though I'm I'm probably safe, I don't feel comfortable going too much lower than that. I go higher, and I think it's because I use bottoming taps. Where you do you use bottoming taps? Oh, bottom okay. bottom spiral flute taps. Maybe it's because I'm just doing so small threads. It could be where the taper on the um, the taper on the drill makes more of a difference or something. I don't know. I leave more. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's for the larger sizes. Like, I I don't worry about the tap breaking. I worry about the machine stopping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I don't think I've ever broke a tap on the Tormach above a either quarter inch or three eighths. I suppose I haven't either, but. I have never tapped anything on the Tormach bigger than a, a quarter 20. And yeah. I see quarter 20 taps as like massive for the kind of work that I do. Yeah. I, I, I tap M12 semi-regularly. Yeah. So that's the largest size that I see. No, I take that back. Uh, the largest tap I've, well, the, the, the five eighths was the largest probably. Yeah, I was just going to say, I did that weird PG-9 tap. Oh, and, yeah. And that one wasn't that one wasn't larger than a 
than a five eighths. It was close, but not quite. Um, here's a pro tip for people listening. Did you know that in Fusion, if you have a uh, like a drill tap chamfer recipe that you use all the time, you can select all three of those together, right click and hit store as template. Yeah. Um, I've been getting better at setting those up. So, and the way I've been setting them up is I do it by um, when you're in the, the cam menu for how you're like selecting the holes, you can either select faces and click, you know, select same diameter. Or what I found out is I do a diameter range. So, you know, if I'm doing a um, quarter 20 tap, I would say, you know, tap all the holes between 200 thou and 210 thou or whatever the size range is. That's a good idea. I don't have mine set up that way. And then you import the template. You don't select anything. And you have your drill tap chamfer right there. Does your chamfer default to the same settings? Or does Um, it it know where to go? It defaults to a 10 thou uh, chamfer. But does it does it does it know where the holes are? Yes, because um, I chamfer when I'm chamfering holes. I use a drilling operation with my chamfer tool, and I just if you go to the bottom, like the what do they call it, the bottom uh, heights tab, mm-hmm. you can select like the bottom height to be a chamfer width of ten thousandths. Okay. So yeah, it all just kind of automatically populates. So one thing, and I don't know if you do this or not, one thing that um, Zometry sent out a while back that we've started, we've adopted as our standard shot practice, uh, because Zometry said that this is a standard shot practice that everyone should be doing, is that you always chamfer your holes um, five to thirty thou larger than the major diameter, depending on the tap size, and they have a range. So, like, uh, if you're under a quarter inch, I think it's 5 thou to 15 thou. And if you're over a quarter inch, it's 15 thou to 30 thou. I just oh. do everything 10 thou. Well, if, well, are you 10 thou over the major diameter or 10 thou over the, the, the drill diameter? It would be 10 thou over the model diameter. And I generally model the drill diameter. So yeah, it, could, it would be a little bit small. That's the problem that we noticed, and so we have changed that, and it makes the it makes it a lot easier to thread things in because the chamfer is outside the major diameter and it guides the threads in as you're going. So we do that as a standard practice on all of our tapped holes now, and it it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Okay. I can make that bigger. That's fair. So, um, I would recommend trying it and just playing around with it, see what you think. So what I like to do is I, I like to model those sizes now. Like I used to, doing it the way you're doing it might make sense. Like once I figure out the right offset from the hole, if I do hole top and then I go down a certain distance, that would be a way to do it. You um, can just type in the chamfer diameter or the chamfer width. Oh, you can? Yeah, you just, it, it, there's one of the, you know how you can um, choose between like stock top, stock bottom, you know, selected point. Mm-hmm. If you are using a chamfer mill in the drill um, tool path, one of the options on bottom height is there's chamfer diameter and there's one that's chamfer width. Oh, I'll have so to try you, that. It'll always give you a 10 thou chamfer width or always give you a 50 thou chamfer width, whatever you want. The, 
the only downside to that method is that I'm not I'm using the chamfer that I use to chamfer all the edges right now. Mm-hmm. And I do, I do have too. huh? I do too. And it's a four flute and four flutes do not like to in my experience uh do deep drilling chamfering cycles. They break all the teeth, at least in stainless. Um, I don't know. I don't have that problem. So but I, I use do, a, we do very different work. So yeah, I I do have a three eighths inch chamfered mill that I got from Haas. That's a two flute, and that sucky that that puppy can uh can deeper holes like a champ, and it has no problem. But it just takes up an extra spot in my tool carousel that I can't yeah. always have in there, and so. Yeah. When push comes to shove, I use the smaller one. I am using the Lakeshore Spiral Flute chamfer mills, um, and I, that probably I really like that one. That that would make a big difference because mine are all flat. I think that could be part of the problem. Uh, mine has a flat at the bottom as well. No, no, no. Like the the, the flutes are straight. I should sorry. Oh They're yeah, not... yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I I really like the spiral ones compared to everything else. Yeah. Um, yeah, the spiral ones because or the, the 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 flat ones because it comes in and hits that whole edge at one time, whenever it's going into the material, um, I've noticed that they're way weaker than all my other tools. Um, and I've heard of the spiral ones. I haven't actually gotten any to play with yet. Yeah, I have been using the same one for ever. It's made me thousands and thousands of dollars. I probably should just replace it on principle. Because at this point it's so old, but um, nah. like, I don't have any problems with it. Yeah. I I do kind of want to move to a different chamfer tool. Oh. Um, I want something that is pointier and maybe a larger diameter. So something like a 3 eighths inch tool that comes down to more of a point. Because I have issues getting, um, like doing some chamfers in like, let's say a small slot, for example. Mm-hmm. And right now I actually have two different chamfer tools that I use, but again, we're talking about, you know, there's another tool you have to keep track of and another tool you have to put in your ATC. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Well, we're, we're constantly changing tools in and out of our ATC. So, um, when we get a new machine, one of these days, we'll get a, it'll have to have a bigger ATC. So, um, so here's something that we haven't talked about yet. I made some changes to my workflow in light of a couple things. So I, I don't remember if this was all pre-podcast. When I talked about, um, we were talking earlier about how at the end of last week, I was very disorganized and distracted and having a hard time getting things done. And my machine was sitting idle a lot of the times. And, oh, we talked about this on the last episode a little bit. Um, and how confusion can be like, the the cause of a loss of productivity and just like not the, knowing what to do next yeah like the the ninth waste or something the ninth waste yeah that's my the one i resonate most with and i am used to just kind of running serial production where you know you do one setup and then i run you know 200 parts on that or whatever mm-hmm. and those 200 parts take a week and over the last week, I was doing a lot of different setups and a lot of different jobs, you know, some standard parts, some non-standard parts, some job shop work, some, well, I didn't do any in-house work, but I have a in-house product that I, or in-house part I need to make. Um, 
And I was just losing so much time from just looking at things going, I don't know what to do. And then, you know, giving up and walking off and doing something else. Um, so I wrote out a, a process and it's a fairly obvious process that probably just about everybody does, but with one exception here on like, this is how you set up the mill to run a new job. And this is just kind of what I needed to get my brain to work properly. I, the first, well, the last step on the, um, the process sheet. So after the job is complete, I take all the tools out of the ATC, except for my core tools. And then the first thing on the, the, um, the first thing on the checklist is to stage all of the tools, uh, to know which ones I need to run. And there is the possibility of me taking out a tool and then putting it back in. Like there will be that waste in the future, but it has made it just so much more clear for my brain. You know, this is the next step. I don't have to go to the machine and stare at the ATC and go, is this the part I need? Or is that the, or is that the tool I need? Or is this the tool I need? You know, where is that tool? Like I just go to it. I have a blank slate. I know exactly what I need to put in. Um, it probably is more steps and more like processes that I have to go through, but it is a lot better for my brain and more efficient for me. And that has been a big help. Yeah. So I'll say, I'll say this. We change stuff in and out all the time. So there's no such thing as a core tool in our machine. And we're constantly changing things in and out. So we just look, is this tool loaded up? No. Is this tool loaded up? Yes. Is this tool loaded up? No. Okay. Which ones can we take out? Uh, I should need that tool for at least three more jobs. So that one can come out. That one can come out. And that one can come out. Okay. <laughs> so we, we, do, we do need to get in the habit of having, if, if we ever bring in another person, we need setup sheets or something that makes it easier for people to um, if we, if I do the programming and then I bring in a, another person to run a machine, there needs to be a formal communication route that we have not defined yet. Yeah. All of my standard products have setup sheets just printed straight from fusion and I'll like sharpie some notes on them. Um, for the job shop stuff, I used to just like look at my computer and try to do it at this point. Again, even though it is extra steps, I print a setup sheet for myself. And then, you know, my this is my Fusion computer. I still put the setup sheet on my workbench right there and use it. Uh, just because it eliminates some confusion for me. Like, it just makes it more clear and straightforward. And um, if you avoid that, um, oh, what do you call it? Like, the initiation energy to get the reaction going. It, uh, if you lower that, it makes it a lot easier for me. So that's actually been hugely helpful. Yeah. Um, do you think, or are you still of the mindset that another machine would make a, a difference in your world? Like, do you want to have a machine for products and a machine for um, prototyping? Um, yes. So I'm, I don't remember if we mentioned this. I am working on buying a new mill right now. Okay. Uh, I'm working on finishing up the financing. I actually owe the guy some some homework. He made he sent me some some questions that I need to answer for him. Um, hey, that's another story at Fabtech. Here, all right, let me go back to the beginning. So, I'm at Fabtech. Uh, you know, we're walking around, we're looking at the machines. Ooh, cool lasers, water jets, press brakes, and we pass a a booth that's like UCNC machines. And I walked up there and I talked to him for a second. He was like, are you guys selling a turret press? And I was like, no, but we're buying a mill. 
and he was like, all right. He, um, he took out a pen and paper and wrote down some notes. He, you know, asked me what I wanted and was a very helpful, you know, knowledgeable guy. And it was like, okay, cool. We, we left there. And then a little bit later down the, the line, we found another booth that was also selling used CNC machines. And I talked to them for a second and they were not being salespeople, I guess is the thing I need to accuse them of. Um, they basically just gave me a business card with their website on it. And we're like, we have used machines. Yes, go to the website. I don't know if it's because like they just looked at my badge and didn't take me seriously or what. Or if it, it was right at the beginning of the show, like within half an hour of opening. So I don't know if, you know, they were just getting warmed up or mm-hmm. you know, maybe I wouldn't talk to the janitor or something instead of a, anyway they were useless um and so then we're walking around fabtech and i you know scott i took a break i checked my email and there was a a, a quote for a used um haas om2 and i was like oh that that looks good the price was really good uh and i was like i am interested in this machine and so i i looked at the the company that sent it to me and i was like I don't think that's one of the companies we talked to, but maybe they had a, um, like a, maybe it's a sub company or parent company or something. Mm-hmm. And I went back to the first company and they didn't know what I was talking about. I went back to the second company and of course they didn't know what I was talking about. And it was like, where did this quote come from? And I just, I called the guy and I was like, Hey, I think I talked to you at Fabtech and, but I, I couldn't find your booth. What booth are you at? And he's like, I'm at Fabtech, but I don't have a booth. I was like, then how did you get me this quote? And he was like, well, you requested a quote on a used Haas CM three months ago. Um, And I was like, oh. And he was like, do you want to meet up and talk about it? And I was like, sure. And so we just went and met at some other random booth. Um, I I was so confused because I had just talked to these companies about a used CM or a, a used OM. Um, and then this guy sent me an email out of the blue and he, which I think was automated because he was at Fabtech. And so I went over and I met with the very confused guy at Fabtech and we were both very confused and we talked about the machine and worked out a deal. Um, so I have a, a handshake agreement and I have sent a, a $0 PO to the company for this machine, um, on the condition that I get financing. So I'm, I'm working on financing the financing company is also at Fabtech, so they've been a little bit slow to communicate with me um, okay but i need to now the ball is in my court now and i just haven't gone around to um, filling out some of the paperwork they were asking for well that's exciting um but yeah so it's a um again this is not a done deal this has not happened yet by the way um delivered on a truck in my driveway it was under 20k. Yeah. Um it's good it deal. is does not need a phase converter. I will have to buy new tooling for it. But in terms of new machines that I can get running in my shop, it is about the cheapest option I can go with. Um supposedly the machine has spent its entire life running uh, plastic, running acrylic. Oh yeah. Um, That's what all it these is machines old. run. Yeah, yeah, it's old. No, normally they run aluminum. <laughs> it's old but supposedly it's only run plastic um we'll see i'm a little bit worried that it has been running some plastics with um uh, fillers in them glass fillers 
Yeah. Uh, it has it has probing. It has the full Renishaw suite. Um, it does not appear to have a coolant system. Oh, okay. which is the the weirdest thing about the machine. But again, that's because it's supposedly been running plastic its whole life. Um, yeah. When when I sell my Tormach, it's only going to have been ever machining foam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing about this machine. The machine payments on this machine, if I only get a three-year loan, will be half of the Tormox machine payments. Oh, dang. So, I mean, part of that is because there was not a down payment on the Tormox, and I will have a down payment on this machine, but it's just, it's so cheap. And I figure if it lasts me two or three years, and then I can resell it for basically the same price um, and move to a, uh, like a, a, a brand new CM... Or maybe I keep that machine and replace this one with a new CM down the line. Uh, it's, yeah. So hopefully we can get this deal worked out. Um, yeah. I Like I said, balls in my court. I need to pick up my pace here. But Yeah, no, I, I, I would love to see a little CM up and running and learn more about him. I mean, I, we've talked a little bit to uh, Fidget Things, I think, in the past about him. But um, And Broken Tap. Broken Taps? Is that his name? Now I'm all um, thrown off by our name. Breaking Taps? Breaking Taps. Breaking, breaking Taps. The, the name I wanted our podcast to be, but he already stole it. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a OM, and I was talking with him about buying his. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is really far away in organizing rigging with him, and he doesn't have probing. And Haas was quoting 5K for probing. Um, his machine is has less hours on it, but the difference in price is less than the difference in price of probing so does does this one come with probing it comes with probing oh that's nice um, that is nice so that's that's huge yeah because yeah. um the tap the machine from breaking taps was i don't want to give away the price it was uh definitely competitive with this one and it had i think it's third as many hours on it but it would be 5k to add probing to it so yeah yeah that's fair. Um, I did find a YouTube channel that's running an OM, and I'm blanking on the name of it right now. But if you search for like OM2, Hoss yeah. OM2 on YouTube, you'll find it. He makes I, injection molds. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've watched that guy. Um, so I watched like all of the machine footage he has with the OM. And I mean, it's clearly not designed for heavy material removal, yeah. but it's really good for small tools, which I do a lot of. So. Yeah, I think for your application, it'll be perfect. You might be on the upper end of machining removal that those things are designed for, but I still think it's right in your ball court. Like, I, I still think they're designed to run a ton. And what's crazy is, I don't know I don't know about the, o, about the OMs, but the CMs are rated at five horse, which is, you know, three horse more than the Tormach. So <laughs> The CMs are just an updated OM. Yeah. So is, are those rated at five horse as well? Yep. Yeah. As far as I can tell, the specs are basically identical. There might be a casting difference, but other than that, they're the same machine. And no coolant. At least on this one. Yeah. Yeah. On the one you might be getting. <clears throat> Which can I. You, can you add coolant or would you do uh, like a fog buster? Oh, I would definitely do flood. Okay. Um, Does it have everything yeah, it needs to do that or do you have to buy all that? It should. Because it's not like. Um, the ability to have a coolant system as an add-on. Like, I think okay. they... 
I would not be surprised if they had a coolant system sitting in a box somewhere. Because I don't think you could buy them without it. Like, it's not an option that you add. They, it's or, a standard. Or they just never turned it on. Or never yeah. filled it with water. For all so. I know, all the parts are just sitting underneath the, the machine in the coolant tank. Okay. What about, um, can those do fourth and fifth axis? Because or, or, I know I know the CMs can do five axis. Uh, this machine comes with the fourth axis drive, and they have the ability to put a, uh, it's like a TRT-70, the little itty-bitty trunnion. Mm. No, I have to get a fifth axis drive, which is like $3,000 yeah. or something. Have you thought about going five axis in your shop at all? I would love to go five axis. Um, but right now I need to go anything not Tormach, and then we can worry about. Yeah. Next no, you need to get there. your production up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think having a second machine of any, any type is going to make a huge difference. So. Yeah. If you had the... to choose, would you use the OM as your production machine or as your prototype machine? Obviously, you have you haven't used it yet, so it's going to be kind of hard to know for sure. But just your gut. So my plan is to rework my carabiner process, where the um, instead of doing sheets, I am putting blanks onto the 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 mill, and that way I don't have like the sheet warpage problems. And my plan is to blank the sheets out on the mill for now, and then put the um, you know the final like op zeros onto the uh, OM. That also helps kind of protect the OM. I don't really mind too much if the sheet starts warping in here and like, you know, dangles a little bit loose, but on my, you know, fancier 330K spindle, it's a little scarier. So yeah, <laughs> let the Tormach do the dangerous stuff and then the OM do the, the stuff it needs, the high spindle speed. That's fair. And then maybe at some point replace that. Like if... If it ever gets to the point where this is all that's all this machine is doing, I'll replace it with a water jet. Yeah. Would you get like a Wazer? Oh, so actually this is something else I found out at the um, the show. So there is the little um, I think it's Omax Protomax. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Omax is the company and Protomax is the the, the water jet, if I have mm-hmm. the, these right. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been looking at that machine for a long time. I looked at it at IMTS, I looked at it again, and you know, I was pretty convinced that that was the machine that I was going to get if I was going to get a water jet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was talking to the sales guy today or at Fabtech the other day, and he was like, you know that our smallest big table is only like 10K more, right? And I was like, I did not know this. Um, so the Protomax is, you know, it's really nice and compact and small, but for just like, 10 or 20% more, you can get a four by four foot with their pump. That's like twice the pressure. That's a really good piece of information because that's exactly what I was wanting for our next shop. Yeah. The bottom of the line, Omax, like full, full sized industrial one, not a lot more than the little tiny one. Um, Did he give you any kind of clean? It's a better pump. Did he give you any kind of pricing on that? It's about 50 K. Okay, that's yeah, that's that's right in line with what I was thinking. I think the only catch is that it's three phase. Not a problem over here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. But if like okay, so the the Proto Max is like I think between thirty and forty k, depending on how you option it. Um, 
but then the then you add 10k for the the bigger one but then you also add like you know 10k for another for a phase converter and have you have you thought about reaching out to Saunders about his Wazer that he's trying to sell? Um, vaguely when I saw, I don't know if he still has that thing. I know he was having kind of a hard time getting rid of him. Yeah, um, but I mean, it might be worth just talking to him to see because if you can get a really good deal on that, um, because the the university I teach at has one and they're pretty capable. I mean, they're not fast. Really? I have but, not heard good things about the Wazers. The university that I'm at uses it all the time. The biggest thing is that they're kind of a pain to clean and they don't have mm-hmm. a whole lot of storage. Yeah. Uh, but like from an accuracy perspective and a, a user experience perspective, the university seems to like it. Yeah. I mean, if I could get one for like 7K or something instead of 30K. Aren't like, they less even than if that it's new? twice as slow? I don't know. I thought they were under 10 grand new. I thought they were like 10 grand new. They might be ten grand new, but like, um, I was thinking if you get one for half price or less, yeah, that would that would probably be worth it. I would save money in titanium, and also tooling, and also cycle time, all of which are big wins. Yeah. Um, so for for your carabiners in particular, that could be a huge win. Yeah, the question is just speed. I've heard those things are painfully slow. They're not. They're not rocket ships that's for sure but they're not nothing either like sure. i've i've seen them cut out aluminum parts and while i wouldn't say that they were a rocket ship they weren't what i would consider slow like for me to for me to machine the same thing in my tormach would take significantly more time just because of the setup and all of that rather than just drag and drop and go that's fair so but Anyway, that's a longer-term plan. In the meantime, we'll have Tormach doing the blanks. Um, the, and I think that'll give me a much more reliable process and faster. To be fair to Tormach, because um, I think sometimes I feel like we do harp on Tormach a lot, I think it's just the next stage that our, both of our businesses are reaching, where the Tormach is no longer enough to get us to the next level. And I have been super impressed with the Tormach on the last run of parts that I did in stainless where I did those 32 parts because when I implemented in process probing um, my parts became way more accurate than I've ever gotten off of it mm-hmm. and so um, it's not that the machine wasn't capable it was that my loading methods while accurate enough for most stuff um having like i don't think i'm ever going to load parts in without probing them on multiple ops even if i have a stop in there um ever again like i think i think in process probing is just the future and it's just how you get a more accurate part no matter what um and and it's something that i've kind of known in the back of my head but i didn't know if if it really mattered on the tormach but i've proven to myself that it makes a huge difference yeah, I generally don't see accuracy issues on the Tormach. Uh, it's generally material removal rates where, yeah. and rigidity. Actually, it's rigidity, which leads to poor material removal rates. Yeah, rigidity is my is definitely my number one issue. Yeah. So, um, I did, however, see you were talking about that stair stepping the other day, um, and I was like, I've never really seen that too much. Well, I did a part where. 
there was one side that was, you know, zero degrees or 90 degrees. And then another part or another side of it, the, the front of it was, I believe, at a 15 degree angle. And same tool, same speeds and feeds, same tool path. The back of the part, really good. The front of the part, eh, acceptable, but not great. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yep, I'm a believer in that now. Yeah. So, like, I think the Tormox are amazing machines. You got to keep them dialed in. There's a lot of maintenance to keep them cutting phenomenal. And you got to work, you got to really work your tool paths to get great results. You got to know your stuff and what you're trying to do and how to program stuff. And you can get absolutely amazing parts on the Tormach. Like I, I would stack my parts up against at least the most recent batch of parts that I did up against any major machine. As long as you didn't look at how long it took me to make them. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, um, but I had a really repeatable process and um, I wasn't at the machine 90% of the time. You know, I, it would, I would hit cycle start, it would run for 30 minutes, and then I would go over and load the next part. So um, while I have been working on optimizing my tool paths and I have gotten my speeds down, now because I'm trying to get more accurate parts and better finishes... Um, I have to go back and do some semi-finishing and finishing, which is adding time back, but it's getting me more accurate parts off the Tormach. So the Tormach is capable. Uh, it just adds even more time to get it more accurate, if that makes sense. And so um, the speed changes that I've been able to make um, by just habitually trying to get the fastest tool bass as possible is, is paying dividends because if I was doing, if I was slowing down as much as I am to do the high, the high accuracy stuff, um, and I didn't have my roughing stuff sped up, it, it would be here for days. I feel like so. Like I've done a lot. I I feel like I can remove material really well on the Tormach, um, for what it is. So like I I filled up a. That bottom tray, I filled it full of stainless in like two days, two or three days, all the way up. So, um, which is probably not a lot for normal machines, but I feel like that's a lot of stainless for a Tormach. That's a lot of stainless for the Tormach. My <laughs> mill may or may not still be full of aluminum from when I made those trays a couple weeks ago. Um, <laughs> but everything else I've done then has been so minimal and material removal that it hasn't mattered. Yeah. <laughs> but I really need to. I really I clean. I, I've produced a lot of chips in that Tormach. Like I have multiple times, I have filled up the chip tray. Um, I've had enough material in the machine to fill up the chip tray four times, and I've had to dig it all out by hand yeah. until I until I have it dug out enough that I can get out a chip tray, and then I still have enough material to fill up the chip tray two or three more times. That's where it's my just, mill is right now. And it's just like, usually it's with aluminum. Like I've done big enough yeah. aluminum parts that I just pack it full. And I've done that with stainless. I've had, I've had enough stainless in there to fill up the chip tray multiple times. So depends on the part. 
everything I do out of stainless or not aluminum is really small. So it doesn't yeah. matter. Um, so I don't know if I've mentioned this yet, but I've been doing a lot of work to that Tormach, um, even though we want to get a new machine, just in preparation because we're probably going to end up hanging on to the Tormach for a while, mm-hmm. even if we get another machine, because it's still, it's still a really good machine. And so we've been doing as much as we can to keep it going as long as we can. And so um, we've got the automatic tool setter, or the automatic, uh, not the automatic, the wireless touch probe from Zoom Speed. We got the rack on the front now, which saved me a shelf in my toolbox. And I have the M code, or the IO shield from Tormach, um, which I was able to mount on the side of my machine which I might post some photos and stuff on that on Instagram, but it's really Do you have cool. any plans for that? So if we ever decide to add a robot or any sort of, sort of automation to it, um, I have a place where I can drill holes and get into the machine without modifying the machine. So on the side of the Tormach, right underneath the power switch, there's a rectangular uh, piece that you can pop out. And I got a I got a black project box that I I got the bolt hole pattern and drilled it and then I drilled a hole a to the inside of the uh, cabinet where I can run cabling through back and forth and then I have my IO shield inside that box and then I have the whole exterior of the box that I can put connectors in if I want to ever get to the point where I can want to communicate between the Tormach and a robot to do any kind of automated loading and unloading. But do you have any plans of accessories that you're going to hook up to your machine right now? Like, is there uh, something I that do... triggered you to buy it? Yeah, I have two accessories that I got it originally for, and both of those I got working today. So one of them is if I'm going to run unattended, I need to be able to touch off my tools automatically. And so the touch, uh, the automatic tool presetter that we had has a has an air nozzle on it and we've never used it and so i got a solenoid for that to blow off the top that way it'll automatically blow off the chips whenever we're touching off tools and then because we have the wireless probe one of my biggest fears is chip buildup on the parts but i don't want to use coolant whenever i'm using the probe and so the flood coolant ring that we got it's the same one that you have which does yours have a, an air Nope, connection. you got the newer model. Yeah, so I got the V2 model that has air built into it, an air connection point. And so um, we've got that set up where it can blow off underneath the touch probe. That way, whenever it goes to automatically probe parts, I'm going to try to set it up on an M code where we can turn on that air because uh, I don't want to use flood coolant while the probe's in there because the box is not watertight. So. To be clear, you mean when the probe is in the spindle, not yeah, when sorry. it's in the machine. When the probe is in the in the spindle, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Because the zoom speed is just a little plastic box that doesn't have a gasket anywhere on it, and it has two electrical connections that have like those little rubber, uh, like, I'm going to stick this little rubber thing into the bottom of my phone to protect it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's in quotes. And that's kind of what the zoom speed has. You know, I'm sure it's it's good enough that like if it gets splashed indirectly, 
but under a sustained load, I would not trust it to keep water out of the box. And so I, to make probing wireless probing work, we need, we wanted to get that air going so we can air blast off the parts uh, while it's probing. I almost pulled the trigger the other day on the parts to make a extending air knife system a la uh, Pearson for my Tormach. Uh, mm-hmm. A pneumatic cylinder and then an air knife to go on the end of it. Because uh, I was, when I when I run salami slice parts, occasionally a part will land on the top of the vise and then the slitting saw will come in and like get stuck on that part. Or in this case, I think it flipped it up and then tried to cut through it and it broke my saw. Um, and it was like, okay, I'm, I, I've had this happen a couple times. I need a solution. Uh, I had a solution where it, when I was making the pry bars, you know, I'm using the same size stock every time. So I made a dedicated fixture where, you know, this is my pry bar salami slice fixture. <coughs> and I was able to, when I designed it, I just made the side sloped. So now the parts just roll up the side. It's not a problem. Uh, but I was doing the salami slice method the other day, just in a vice. And I had that same thing happen. So I was like, all right, I'm going to buy a pneumatic cylinder. I'm going to put an air knife on the end of it. I'm going to buy the um, the Tormach USB I.O. thing so then I can extend the cylinder and then use the air knife and clean everything off. And then I realized that that was going to be like $500. And so what I did instead is I took a paintbrush and I stuck it in a tool holder. And now I use that with a contour tool path to just kind of push anything out of the way. And that actually worked really well. And it cost me zero dollars. T- tell me you got one of those like big uh those big bristle ones that are like like um oh you're getting it no i did the opposite i got an acid brush oh okay um and i cut off the tip a little bit so it's just a little bit of a brush but mostly it's a stick do you know what else would work pretty good that if you got one of those um what are they called they use them in the automotive world they're like a like a cleaning brush for cleaning parts but they go on the end of a die grinder Hmm. um and so they're they're kind of like a silicone like brush but they're designed to be spun at higher rpms yeah and so if you got something like that and they're pretty short so they're not very long but they can spin really fast, and they have a whole bunch of fingers on them that would be really good for pushing stuff out of the way. That would be good, because this doesn't always push... like It doesn't kind of throw the part off like I was hoping. It does mm-hmm. push it out of the way, but it doesn't like move it more aggressively. Yeah. So if you got uh, something that had a little bit bigger diameter, and then you could actually rotate your spindle at a decent click and you can kind of probably play with your rpms you don't want it to throw it but you want it to have enough force yeah. to to get it out of there one of my um thoughts on how i can improve it is to do a 3d printed thing and mm-hmm. i can even use that 3d printed thing to check if something is there or not so for example right now you know i salami slice off the part then i come in with um a 3 inch end mill and i just kind of ram through where the part should no longer be mm-hmm. and if the part is there it breaks my tool and it then fails the tool breakage detection check after it 
Uh, and if the parts, if the part is just sitting on top and loose, it gets knocked off. Or if the part's not there, nothing happens. Um, basically, I can't do tool breakage detection on the saw. It's too big. And so what I do instead is I do tool breakage detection on that tool. Um, gotcha. As kind of a workaround. And so, like, yes, I may lose a $10 tool if there's a part there, but it, you know, is a little bit of added insurance. Yeah. That's fair. You know, honestly, if you're just using a tool for that, you could almost just, if you're worried about breaking tools and you have an extra tool holder location, you could almost just take toothpicks yeah. and <laughs> and just stick stick them in a tool holder. Be really cheap and easy. And if they broke, no big deal. That's what I'm basically saying with the 3D printed one is you yeah. could have like a, you know, some arms or something that spin around and kind of push parts out of the way mm-hmm. or like a TPU something on the end. Um but then, yeah, you can just kind of use it to plow through where the part should no longer be. And if mm-hmm. it's there, it just breaks and fails into a breakage deck. But I like the idea. You could do skewers, too. Yeah. Extended reach toothpicks. Yeah. Yeah. They, they break. Who cares? Yep. They're like a buck for like 100. <laughs> yeah. And the thing I like about the, the 3D printed ones, though, is you could tune how easy it is to break the tool. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. by like how many layers or how many shells you put in the part or the diameter or any of that stuff or the diameter or any of that stuff or an intentional weak spot. Yeah. I like it. You should do it real cheap and easy. Um, and the last thing, which I think we also talked about on the last podcast that I found at FabTech was a new way of painting things. Uh, the samples came in the other day. So the samples did not come with, with any sort of documentation, including what variety of paint they sent me. So like they have, you know, 10 different different varieties mm-hmm. um, for different applications. And the, the sample did not say which one it was. So I, yeah. need to, I need to figure out which one it is. And then it gets diluted with some uh, distilled water. And then you do the painty thing. But I don't know how much to dilute it right now because I don't know which type it is. Have you ever thought about? Sorry, this is a random thought because I I, I was just sitting here thinking on uh, new equipment for some reason. Uh, well, okay, I'll tell you I'll tell you how my train of thought got here because I remember it now. Talking about coatings makes me think of anodizing. Talking about anodizing makes me think of my deck defenders. Which the deck defenders, I have someone who's interested at buying them in bulk, but doing them in bulk on my machine is horrible. I can't make enough money off of my machine in bulk, but it's like the perfect Speedio product. And so I feel like the deck defenders, if I ever get back into the product space and and go at it with full force, and if I ever ended up with the Speedio, that I could produce those um, because like... I was talking to Dylan. I don't remember if it was on the podcast or afterwards or when it was, but I was talking to him about some of my products and um, he really liked the deck defenders. And my biggest problem with the deck defenders is it's between 30 and 45 minutes um, per deck defender. Mm -hmm. And um, at least with one machine at the time when I was doing them, because I didn't have the lathe and supporting two people, the amount of money I needed to charge in combination with anodizing, because anodizing was stupid expensive at the time. 
because I didn't have large enough batches. Um, so that's what made me think of the coatings. Um, it, it just wasn't a profitable product. But that equation changes drastically if I can, instead of getting, you know, you know, single, maybe double digits worth of boxes done in a single day to I can get multiple boxes done in, an, in like an hour mm -hmm. uh, on something like a Speedio. That equation changes drastically to the point where I can sell them at a fraction of the price that I was needing to sell them to be profitable. Even though the machine's a lot more expensive, I could just pump out in volume a lot more. And so I can make up for in volume um, even though it's a more expensive machine. And I didn't know if you've ever thought about that for any of your product lines. Or you could put your deck defenders on a robot and run them unattended overnight where it's mm -hmm. not taking machine hours. Yeah, the only problem with that is I'm not always running aluminum and there's a lot of fixturing that I'd have to set up. Which I can do with the Pearson yeah. pallet system that I have now. Unless um, you get your VF3YT and then you have your Tormach sitting in a corner. Yeah, yeah, which I would be, I would have no problem. I've always said the Tormach would be an awesome machine just to have running in the background. And that's why I don't really want to get rid of it. Um, and it'd be, it's an awesome aluminum plastic product machine if you have other machines going with it. <laughs> yeah. Like, if if you had a row of Tormox all making products, I think it'd be, it'd be fine. The problem that I've always had um, is that one Tormach, because of its material re removal limitations for the types of products I've tried to do with it, I, I can't get enough through the machine physically while I'm there to justify doing products on that machine as, as the sole source of income. That changes a little bit when I get a lathe. That changes a little bit when I can do job shop work and I can charge more for my hour than I could for product stuff. The problem is, is I can't charge 80 bucks an hour on my product stuff, but I can't, or 75, 80 bucks an hour on my product stuff. Can't charge that, but I can't on, on job shop stuff. So it's a lot easier to hit those values. Or even, even if I can't charge 80 bucks an hour on my job shop stuff because the Tormach's not as fast as other people, it's still a lot higher dollars rate than product stuff. Because the product stuff, it's kind of like you're trying to go for a much lower uh, price point uh, because you're making it in large volume. And so... Yeah, I, go ahead. Have I ever pitched you my budget machine shop plan for world dominance? No, you haven't. Let's uh, hear it. Very serious plan. So... Tormach 440s. Mm -hmm. No power drawbar, no tool changer. They're like 5000 bucks or something. Mm -hmm. You get like nine of them. You put them on a big shelf. You get one robot and an auto bandsaw. And instead of a tool changer, you just move the, you take the material off the bandsaw, put it in the first Tormach, you know, and then when that's done, you put it on the second one. And then you can get nine 440 spindles running in parallel on your parts. Yeah, that's actually not a bad idea. <laughs> if the total setup would be like $60,000. So. I see nothing that could go wrong with this. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's honestly not the worst idea. <laughs> um, I have actually thought similar thoughts of like buying multiple Tormox and just running product. Like if I was still trying to go after the product idea. Um, which I still am. I, and if I was to try to do that with Tormox, I would definitely need 
an army of them to get things out in volume that I would like to, or one speedio. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where the, that equation just kind of changes. Um, Cause like, I feel like what you can get done with a, you, what's, what's the best example. Um, I think it was a, um, within tolerance podcast where Dylan was talking to someone about running uh brass parts on like a swiss lathe i don't know if any of this rings a bell and um they were bidding the job and the guy bid it for less than the value of the material with the idea that he was going to make it back on scrap yeah because of because of the material price and it's like so you're running a multi-million dollar machine and you're 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 making money even though the part is you're selling the part for less than the material you're running through your machine and you're just making it back on the amount of scrap it can produce in that amount of time. Um, absolutely insane business strategies. Yeah. But it, it does show that you can, in some cases or in a lot of cases, a more expensive machine can allow you to produce parts at a cheaper cost, which is the whole benefit to getting a more expensive machine. And so it's kind of made me rethink a lot of different strategies and why I'm more willing to spend more money because I think the return will be greater, if that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. the problem you run into with my solution is that whole mean time between failures thing. Yeah. I bet the mean time between failures on my Tormach robot auto bandsaw thing is um, rather short. Yeah. Lots of failures likely to happen there. Yeah. Although, although because of how small they are, you'll probably have a lot of time in between failures. <laughs> yeah. Well, or you just, yeah, because they're so slow. Um, <laughs> or you just have like three spare Tormox laying around that you can swap in. Yeah. Hot swap the Tormox. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a print farm with Tormox 440s. That, that was exactly where I got my idea. It's not honestly a bad idea. Um, no, this is a bad idea. It's a well, fun idea. But it's no, what's 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 the guy who does the computer parts on a Tormach in his garage? He he sells them to. Um, uh, he has a YouTube channel. I've actually talked to him a handful of times through like Instagram. I forget his name. He he has a he makes um, computer uh, combs for like cable management. Um, but he started his business on a Tormach and he's got three or four Tormachs running with Pearson pallets, um, pretty much all the time. And he's, he's selling them in bulk and he's doing it on Tormachs in his garage. And he said it took him about three years to get to the point where he was making decent money. A lot of that had to do with the throughput of the Tormachs. But what's cool is that he's built his business and, and grown his profits by just getting more Tormox rather than getting a bigger machine. Yeah. Um, and so that side of the business I think is really cool uh, because he's been able to grow. And I, I think he's got three or four Tormox now all running different product lines of, of that stuff. And they're all on Pearson pallets and he, he, he'll put like a plate of aluminum and get like 40 parts off when it's done. Uh, Cause they're all pretty small. That. They're all pretty small computer parts. I I could see having like a row of like the CM machines as well. If you had the right parts for them, 
you yeah. know, something small, lots of detail, high value, not a lot of material removal. Put a robot in front of a CM and, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, a robot could feed like 10 CMs with the, <laughs> if you got the right yeah. one with the right reach. Um, just have a ring of CMs around a robot. Yeah. Yeah. Just, or like, a, or like a moon. And then you just have all your material in one spot and it can go to each machine. That would actually be honestly a really sick setup. Honestly. Um, uh, but is, the thought has crossed my mind. Yeah. Anyways, lots of different ways to skin a cat and it's fun to brainstorm different ideas. Um, cause I think as you're learning and as I've learned and, and, and still learning, um, to grow a business, you need more than one machine. <laughs> uh, so. Well, more than one Tormach. Yeah. Um, you know, the uh, actually, one way you could practically do what we were just talking about, you take a 440 and you use it as a dovetailing machine. Oh, yeah. As It'd part of a, a robot cell. So you have, you know, your you have your kern, and right next to your kern, you have a 440. And the only thing the 440 does is dovetail the material yeah. that a robot then picks up and puts in the kern. So I think it was Saunders who kind of was talking. Because Saunders, I think he had, I think he had like seven Tormox before he got his first Hoss. Mm-hmm. And he built his company off of Tormach. Um, So there is a case to be said that you could have an army of Tormox and do a lot with them. Oh, yeah. Uh, um. And that's something that I have not discounted, but I think I think I can shoot up a little faster if I just go to a bigger machine yeah. rather than getting more of the same. If that makes sense. But I'm also moving into a new building with three phase. So yes. so that that changes the equation too. I didn't really have enough room for any other machine where I'm currently at. So I would even even if I didn't move into the new shop, I was gonna have to get a new machine, and I was gonna have to fit it in a smaller garage, and the Tormach was either gonna have to go, or uh, I was gonna have to have a smaller machine next to it. So, but now that now that we're moving into a different facility, that equation changes. Three phase power opens things up. Lot yeah. lot of options. Too many options. And. VF2s are so cheap. Yeah. Like, a VF2 is two Tormox. At least yeah. these ones. Which mm-hmm. is just wild to me. I can't believe they're as cheap as they are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, you can do a lot on a VF. As 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 unthrilling as it is for all my listeners who are screaming at their, at their headsets going, Harrison, don't you dare get a VF. <laughs> VFs only do aluminum. And they even cut steel. <laughs> oh my goodness i i i love the all you listeners who've told me not to get a uh haas machine i hear you i do hear you but there's a reason they're one of the best selling machines in the u.s it's because they're fifty thousand dollars starting price yeah or 60 or something yeah so i i would like to get a deuce on if i you know i don't know i don't know what you i'm need- gonna end up with I'm still. You need to go with the Herco, buy one get one free, and just give me the free one. I've honestly looked at that. Like, I'd love to figure out what machines they have. Like, I, like I've I've done a little bit of research on it. There's a, there's a machine on Facebook Marketplace. Have you heard of uh, Leadwell? No. 
there's one on sale for marketplace for 80 grand that has a five axis trunnion on it it's like a 2015 i was like my dad found it and he was like hey you have you heard of this company i was like no but that's a very interesting prospect um oh i did so i have been looking into the price of adding the uh if i get the om if and when i get the om how much it would cost to add the fifth axis trunnion mm-hmm. and you can find them used even from haas haas right now has the honey the, the honeyon the trunnion that i would need to put on there for like 15k as mm-hmm. a like a used one or something or a in stock discounted whatever yeah but it's several thousand dollars also for the the drive which makes it cost more than the entire machine. But it is a little bit tempting. It is very small, though. The TRT-70s, you're like, if you want to machine a one dice, like you're pretty set. But if you want to machine much bigger, then it is really tiny. I'm not seeing that machine on here anymore. I wonder if it sold. It might have sold. Oh, well. Well, if any if any of my listeners or any of the listeners have heard of Leadwell and you know anything about them, I'd be interesting to hear feedback on that. The name is ringing a bell, but I feel like they're like a like I'm thinking of like an electronics parts manufacturer or something. Yeah, I don't know, or like stepper drivers or something weird like that. I've I've never heard of them before personally. Yeah. So, but well, let's see here. Is there anything else? Um. I'm going to get a PO that's going to... Oh. Sorry. No, you're good. You're good. <laughs> the, the only thing I was going to say is I'm about to get more buried because um, I've quoted... I've quoted over 2,000 parts and I've I told that I'm going to get another PO for another 1,200 parts on Wednesday. And these are all parts due before my current big order. So I have less than a thousand parts right now, and that might go up to thirty-two over over three thousand parts by the end of this week. Well, you need to go run your mill. What are you doing on a podcast, dude? My my mill like the lathe is pumping out parts so fast, and the mill there's just a pile of parts building in front of the mill that are all yeah. lathe parts that have to have like flats machined on them, like. No joke, there's probably over 100 parts that Weston's done in the last two or three days that are just in front of the Tormach waiting to get their final flats mill on them. It's, the Tormach is such a bottleneck compared to that machine. Like, like, like Weston can produce, like, a couple hundred parts in an afternoon on the on the lathe, and it's like, the Tormach works on 32 parts for four days. It's like, this is dumb. All right, all right. Uh oh, no, no. Uh, there it is. All right, for reals, for reals this time. For realsies. For realsies. All right, guys, it's uh, it's the end of the podcast. It's the first time we've actually gone this long in a while. Hour and a half, not bad. So, for those of you that have held on to the end, we appreciate you listening to this week's podcast. It's not as exciting because we don't have any guests, but. Hey, you get to hear a little bit about what's going on in our in our on in our worlds. So hopefully that that's enjoyable. So uh, like, share, tell all your friends, and uh, for those new listeners that have joined us because of all of our guests, we're sorry, but not sorry. Thanks for listening. 
<laughs> so, because we don't have any guests this week. That's the only reason I say that. So, anyways, I'm Harrison with Precision Ingenuity, signing out with AJ from Design the Everything. Bye.